Hi, this is Andrea Borcha. And I'm Charles Wilchin. This is Far Stuff. The Internet of Things podcast. This week on Far Stuff, we talk to Stefan Biller, who is Chief Manufacturing Scientist at GE. My name is Stefan Biller. I'm the Chief Scientist at the GE Global Research in upstate New York. It sounds like you're doing some pretty exciting things with the brilliant factories and the global brain at GE. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we have a really fantastic new initiative with lots of energy around that, where we look at our factories and we're trying to figure out how do we make use of, you know, what people call the global brain? How do we connect all these factories using a digital thread all the way from design through manufacturing engineering to the factories and then even through our service shop back to design. And the goal really is to think about how do we make these factories smarter? How do we make our engineers smarter with better tools? And how do we make our service shops smarter? And not only make them smarter individually, but also collectively. So connect them so that it can benefit from all the information we are collecting in design, in in engineering, in production, in use, and then in service. So do you have an example of how this has worked on, let's say, one item that you be, you're you manufacturing at one of the GE plants? Yes, just let's take an example from our GE aviation business. So they are making jet engines. They are very successful in the marketplace. They have about 70% market share. And let's just imagine you want to design a new jet engine. So, of course, you use all sorts of digital tools for the design, but then what you really want to think about in the brilliant factory context is to say, okay, now we have a beautiful new jet engine. What we want to do is we want to make them in the most efficient way. So we have to design a factory. We have to design supply chains from people who work with us. We have to design the processes, the manufacturing processes, you know, we're going to do welding, joining, robotics, controls, all sorts of manufacturing processes. We want to test out in virtual before we actually putting it on the factory floor. The reason being is putting it on the floor and debugging then is very, very expensive and it takes you a long time. And so you could cut out a lot of valuable time so that you could introduce these products faster while you are designing both the product as well as the factory. So that's sort of like step one. So Stefan, you're saying that effectively step one is sort of building a simulator for the factory? Yeah, I think that, that that's exactly the way you want to you think about that's that. That's a big it's, step. It's, yeah, it's a big step. So, but it's not only for the factory. So, so think about that. You know, most of the time we are maybe making roughly 20% of the parts ourselves, and then 80% we are we are outsourcing to suppliers all over the world. So, not only do you have to simulate what you're doing in the factory with all the processes, you also have to think about how you connect that then to your suppliers to make sure that you're really getting a product and a supply chain that is completely debugged or error-free before you put it into uh, into production. So you've built this simulator. You can try out optimizations and stuff before you even put together molecules to build stuff, to build other stuff. Yeah, that's, exact, that's exactly the idea. And, you know, think about how powerful that is because it's, it's really going to help you to optimize a line in the factory, a cell, a machine, and then even the, the whole factory and finally, the supply chain. So you're really going from like, you know, very small entities to very, very large entity in the supply chain. 
As you're going through the simulator process, do you find that the product itself that needs to be manufactured, so example, like the jet engine, does the design of that change as you start assembling the factory? That's an excellent question. So really the key is all in the feedback loose in a fast learning cycle. So if you think about that designer have, have made this jet engine, they have, they have designed a part. What you really want to tell the designer at this point, you want to tell him or her how expensive it is. Have you violated any tolerances that, you know, maybe this particular part could not be made from this particular material? This radius cannot be accomplished because uh, the material might be too brittle. You want to have that instant feedback to that designer while he or she is designing the part. And not only that, you also want to say, okay, here's what this part is going to cost. So if you just, for example, loosen up a little bit on these tolerances, here's what that new cost would be. Do you really need these tight tolerances for this particular design? Furthermore, you could even go as far as saying, you know, if you design it this way, you only have one supplier in the world who can actually make this for you. If you actually increase the tolerances by just a little bit, you have three and you might be able to get a competitive bid, which is also, of course, something we are, we are interested in. And then you can introduce design rules that sometimes today are only in the heads of very experienced engineers. And while you're digitizing those design rules, you even make them part of this, what we call a producibility advisor. So it's a very, very exciting new tool that combines engineering and costing. Interesting. So... These design advisors, you may only have one or two of these people in the world that may understand some process. You sort of simulate their expertise as well, and suddenly you might have a lot more options as to how expensive it can be made, where it can be made. Yeah, I think that's exactly the idea. And I think you, you hit on another point. Where can it be made? So if you're designing it and the only supplier you have is, is the far away, it's, it's, it's usually much harder to get to to short learning cycles. What you really want, if possible, is, is an interaction with a supplier that is, uh, is, is very quick. Let's assume you have the simulation down and gotten the product to a good place. What's the next step after the simulation is working well? I think when we say simulation, I think we need to recognize that this is not just a single simulation. It's like many, many, many simulations that have to interact with each other. So you want to simulate the robots and the controls and the welding processes, the forming processes. You want to simulate the throughput and the flow in the factory and so forth and the supply chain. So the first key that you really also have to take into account that you have to think about how do I thread this through all these standalone simulations and make sure that if I make one change that it propagates through all those simulations and I can make intelligent trade-offs between my different type of simulations. Does GE provide sort of a stock set of simulation models for the equipment that GE makes for its own factories? I mean, I assume that if you can do one, can you leverage that for subsequent factories? Yes, absolutely. So the key is always, you know, GE has more than 400 factories. The key is always to figure out how do we make the solution scalable. You know, for the most part, what we would really like is we would like to buy as, as much of, of that intelligence from software suppliers. So we are, we are working with people who are doing casting simulations. We are working with people who do assembly simulations, flow simulations, robotic simulations, and so forth. But then the real key is, as, as I said, as we are integrating those and we make them all sit as an application on a platform, the real key is how we make sure that we use this for not only for the uh, people in for aircraft engines, we use it for uh, other turbine machinery like for oil and gas, for our turbine business, and then how do we use it for, all, for healthcare? 
GE, as you know, is an industrial corporation with lots and lots of different industrial divisions. And the most important part is that we are making sure that we come up with company solutions, not just with individual specialized solutions that might work for one particular area. When you're taking into consideration all these industries and all the different ways that they manufacture, essentially what you're saying is you could find a very efficient process that works well, for example, on a healthcare side of things, and then apply it to the jet engine manufacturing and somehow that could improve things in a way that no one ever conceived of. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And if you think of our healthcare business, that was, that's an excellent example. How do we get the synergies out of that? So they are building all these very high-end uh, healthcare applications like CT and MRI and so forth. And we are using actually those products in our turbo machinery businesses. Again, these are aviation, power and water, and oil and gas. And we learn how to inspect parts with these particular products that are typically used in hospitals on patients. So it's that synergy, I think, that puts GE in that fantastic position, leveraging both manufacturing capability and products from other businesses to make the, the business stronger as a whole. And that's really why, why GE is powerful with all these different divisions and why one plus one in, in GE's case is really larger than two. <laughs> You mentioned the word platform before. So that's sort of a magic word. Are you turning all of this knowledge about how you've integrated all these simulations into a greater simulation into some sort of platform? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly how, the way we are, we, are, we are thinking. So if you think of this platform we are building, and you might have heard of Predix, which is a platform we are building for our industrial internet, we're using essentially exactly that platform and say, okay, so how do we how do we make sure that all of our data is stored on that platform so that we have access to those data for all these simulations? And for the simulations, you can really think of basically applications or apps that sit on top of that platform that would allow us then to utilize all the data that has been put onto Predix. That setup is really fantastic for integrating new innovations from other companies and other suppliers because it would allow you for very quick integration of the innovation these companies may offer in the future. Excellent. So how would they work with you on this platform? So they're, I take it they can plug into this in, in some sort of documented way? Yeah. So, so the way we are thinking about that is going through an external platform. In fact, you know, we are one of the lead companies for a new exciting institute the federal government is standing up in Chicago called the Digital Manufacturing and Design Innovation Institute, or code, or DMDII. That is one of those 15 institutes President Obama is standing up. The first one was on additive manufacturing, and I think this would be the third one. And it's really trying to enable the nation to take advantage of that digital threat that is really developing pretty much all over manufacturing. And so the idea there is really to create an external platform that could easily be linked to our internal platform and using that platform as a test bed for all the innovation that is being developed all over the world and, in, and of course also in the United States. And so what it would do is it would allow us to put data, maybe old data from old design data and old production data from one of our factories or, or let's say jet engine designs that is not proprietary and if, if a supplier or a university, for that matter, says, hey, you know, we have a new tool 
that would help you, let's say, predict the failure rate, the, the failure of machines ahead of time. So I can tell you ahead of time when a machine is going to fail, and because I can tell you ahead of time that it is going to fail, you might be able to do something about it. The first question, of course, I have if somebody approaches me with it is, well, does it really work? Now, what I would do in that case, I would say, well, why don't you show me on this external platform where we have some old machine data, maybe five-year-old that we collected, how would you improve the uptime of the machine by showing me the prediction of failures? Wow, so you can actually use this to effectively try out all kinds of reconfigurations anytime you like. Exactly, and it's beneficial both for the innovator and for General Electric because the innovator can test it out, can show it to us. We don't have to pay the integration cost. I don't have to find a factory where I have to try it out, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of people and you know, uh, it would be much, much better to show this on this external platform. So that's our advantage. And if it works, I can simply then use the link I have between those platforms, test it on our proprietary data, see if it still works on that proprietary data, and then uh, make a decision of whether I really want to go ahead and purchase this particular innovation from this from the supplier. So that's incredible. That's almost applying like the software development model to Real manufacturing. Real manufacturing. <laughs> and that have... is exactly right. It is it is the software development model applied to manufacturing. And it's really trying to go after, you know, how do we get to that global brain? How do we get to faster innovation? And how do we figure out to take advantage of small and medium enterprises that, you know, they have a lot of innovative power in them. And right now, it's very hard to operationalize that. But once you have that set up in the way I'm describing it, and this is an aspirational state that doesn't, that doesn't exist yet. But once you have that, it would be so much easier and so much simpler to integrate all these great new tools that, have, that are developed you know, at universities, at government labs, at small and medium suppliers. It will be so much better for everybody. But not only will it be better for GE, it will also be better for the supplier. Because it's not only General Electric who's playing on that open source platform. There are all these other big companies or, and smaller companies that are playing there. So the supplier pays only the integration cost one time, and then he could show it to their respective customers very, very quickly on their own data and the customers, if they build something like we are building with Predix, they could easily connect their own platform to this open source platform. So that's the idea. It becomes an entire global manufacturing community at that point, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I find this extremely exciting because it will reduce the cost and the time of innovation. You know, in a very short period of time, you would be able to greatly improve the, the competitive of manufacturing. What if a factory already exists and already is in place and, and they have their process? Is there a way that they could participate in this platform so that they can possibly improve their situation? Or if one of their machines go down, that they can find an innovative way to work around it? Yeah, so, so far we have mostly talked about the engineering piece or what I call manufacturing or supply chain systems design. But now when we talk about manufacturing systems operations, you really, if you walk in a factory today, practically every piece of equipment is a computer and spits out a ton of data. And so what you need to do in the second stage, you need to think about how do you improve the operations of that factory using all that real-time data that you're gathering from the plant floor. You know, there are like lots and lots of IT systems, manufacturing execution systems, there are scheduling systems, quality systems, all the equipment is giving you data. Every machine spits out a lot of data. 
you have uh, programmable logical controllers that help you run that factory, manage that data and put it into a manufacturing ex execution system. You have uh, a maintenance crew that that's scheduled through a maintenance system. And the question, of course, is how do you use all those real-time data that, that is being generated on a system level? So again, it's a very similar problem to what we talked about before. How do you, again, integrate those data into, into one platform? And then how do you put the application or the apps on top of that so that you actually can make intelligent trade-offs between, let's say, energy consumption and maintenance and throughput? Today, these systems are standalone systems, and people make the best decisions they can, but they don't have the opportunity to look at trade-offs between those systems. Is there any sort of management infrastructure that tries to tie the data together, or is that just a whole new concept when it comes to brilliant factories? Yeah, that is the new concept. So tying all these data together is really the concept, and the idea of a platform and of a platform that is scalable, and it can easily be maintained, and that can easily be extended to new application. That is really the key that will change us from the current system to the brilliant factory. The applications then take advantage of those data integrations, and so I will be able to look at a trade-off of, should I send this operator to this machine or to that machine? Which machine should get serviced? It is really all about making real-time decisions of allocating resources. Where should I send my people? How should I route my parts to the system? And is my equipment always up or down? So I could make decisions of maintaining equipment better. I could make decisions where I should allocate the operators most efficiently. I should allocate my maintenance crew in the best way. And also linking it back to the supplier, if I had perfect visibility into my suppliers so that they could exactly tell me when they're going to deliver what part and when they, more importantly, maybe when they won't deliver what part. So then I could rearrange my manufacturing schedule in a way that I always run my factory at the most optimal point. You're getting all this data from upstream on the supply chain. So you're sort of like looking into the future <laughs> and trying to figure out how to plan for that. I think that's exactly right. You're looking into the future of what's going to come towards you, and then you can react. So the power of prediction is really going to increase by a lot. And not only from the supply chain, it will also, as we talked about before, be on the machine. So I could imagine that I have a machine where I can predict when it's going to go down. So just to give you an example, let's just say you have a robot cell and you have five robots in there. And because of, you're now looking at all those real-time data, you might be able to predict that robot number three is going to go down in 10 minutes. So what are you going to do? Well, if you had this manufacturing systems design we talked about in the first part, you could maybe go back and say, oh, let me as quickly as possible redesign that robot cell now with four robots. And maybe if I could do it within those 10 minutes, I would get to a factory that literally would never stop because I could allocate the work at least in this case, so these other four robots. I wouldn't be as fast as with the five robots, but at least I would have something that would never stop. Wow, so you're changing the car tire while the car is driving down the road, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, kind of. That's incredible. So in theory, if you knew some piece of the supply chain, you didn't have something coming in from a supplier or a machine was going to go down, you could actually restructure your entire manufacturing process in that area to kind of reorder in what if possible, reorder how something is assembled. That is exactly the idea. 
And in case you, you need to do some validation, the model we, we developed in manufacturing systems design might help you to validate that this is actually an acceptable change. So the virtual models, we talked about it in the beginning, and the factory, the operating factory working in concert, that is really where the power of, of the building factories is going to be incredible compared to what we have today. At some point, will the factory actually start sending out bids for, for on the <laughs> supply chain by itself when it notices that there's going to be a problem? That's when it becomes Skynet, right? Yeah, I think, I think that's a very interesting idea, and I think eventually we'll get there. However... For now, I think we'll stick to production and we assume <laughs> that everything everything is taken care of in terms of the supply chain and we will not get into the bidding. But you can imagine a time when you had like automated bidding processes. You could even imagine automated price adjustments using optimization, just like the airlines do today through their revenue management systems. If you add the technology of 3D printing into this, I mean, you could really have things printed exactly as they're thought up in your in predicts and then test them out and see if it actually works in reality and if it's more than just a theory. Yeah, I think 3D printing has sort of like shown us the way towards this brilliant factory concept because if you think about 3D printing and the open innovation that is happening in 3D printing today, that's really quite remarkable, right? You have people who can actually do designs in their basement and then if they do it well, and there might be a print shop outside, you know, you could even imagine it would be like a, a, a Kinko's with a lot of printers. You could imagine that, that people set up these structures through the additive environment. If you then link in the open innovation, you know, we ran, we ran an open innovation contest a while back where we tried to have a bracket redesign for our aircraft engine business. And I, I think we, we had like 700 people who competed in that. And in the end, we got like an incredible design additively made that uh, reduced the weight by about 85%. It's really that idea that triggered the notion of the brilliant factory. If we could only generate that kind of an ecosystem in quote-unquote traditional manufacturing, that would really be fantastic. Because today, while additive manufacturing is certainly the future, it is you know rather small. I think in 2012, about 0.02% of all parts were made additively. So it's certainly the technology of the future, but it you know might take some time that we get some substantial volume out of uh, out of additive manufacturing. The collaboration alone just sounds incredibly exciting. Yes, so it's really the orchestration of how do you bring all this together into the product and allocate all the resources in real time. It will help us drive down inventory, improve throughput. It will probably reduce sourcing costs, and also it will help us cut the time it takes to introduce a new product, probably by, we think, by maybe even half. Wow. Is it possible that with a view across all factories that it will change what GE manufacturers wear? Like, do you think there's a sort of a macro optimization that can happen when you... Yeah, I think that will exactly happen. So when we talk about the global brain for manufacturing, that's what we think about. We think of a manufacturing network, not just of an isolated factory. And you could even take this a step farther. You know, we are now introducing a new concept of what we call multimodal factories. So where we have factories that produce products for multiple parts of GE. So then once you have these very flexible factories, you can integrate that into your global optimization of the entire manufacturing system. Wow. So it's, it sounds like 
<laughs> it sounds like something like Amazon Web Services, only instead of spinning up like instances of virtual machines, you're spinning up actual things. Man <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like, oh, well, we'll just spin up this to manufacture this, and we don't care where it is. Just put it in the best place. Yeah, that is certainly the goal. And the real-time data and the manufacturing systems design we talked about before enables you to do that because you can validate processes in virtual and sort of download the, the, the programs, let's say, for a CNC machine to that particular factory. So you can really have a system that can be optimized on a global scale. And that's really where we want to be. How far along is Predix right now? As you know, we have stood up a big software center in California, and they are, have been designing this platform. They are pretty far along. They are, you know, a bunch of modules that help us getting started. So we are starting to put these modules into our factories as we speak. We're putting a lot of our applications into the cloud. Very exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. And it's really the start of a, of a new era, I think, in manufacturing. Because I think, you know, manufacturing, we will always have to develop new processes. We'll have to develop new materials and, and so forth. This will never go away. But I think if you think of the, of the factory within like 10 years or so, I think the biggest change we'll see is the change that is caused by what we'll call the, the digital threats. You know, how, how is all this information technology and the analytics and the optimization affecting how we produce? I'm wondering if there's going to be some surprise players as Predix launches and goes global and you have multiple entities around the world that can contribute. I wonder if there'd be some surprise engineering marvels that uh, from areas that we didn't expect. That's exactly what we think is going to happen. So coming back to this contest on the additive we had, where we had the 700 entries for this bracket, the winner came from Indonesia, a person with, you know, obviously excellent engineering skills, but we had never heard of the person. And so we are thinking, you know, getting to that environment, that ecosystem that would allow all these people that have a lot of uh, innovative ideas contribute to our ecosystem. That's really where we want to go, and, and that's the system we want to set up. So is there any part of this that GE wants to keep as secret sauce for its own factories, or is the plan to help en enable that for everybody that wants to play? It's very important to us that we think of manufacturing as a collaborative environment, because only if we think about a collaborative environment, this is really going to work. And so we have to develop standards everybody's going to play by and we will we'll develop this open source platform everybody will benefit from. But they will, all, of course, always be parts that you want to keep proprietary because you want to keep your competitive advantage. However, we do have a business called uh, GE Intelligent Platforms where we actually sell manufacturing execution systems and we will get to uh, a GE Intelligent Platform solution. So what the people who work in this business really want to do is they think about how can they create the best solution for their external customer so that their manufacturing systems will improve significantly. So it is we want to improve the internal GE factories, but we also want to help our division in intelligent platforms so that they become more and more competitive in selling their products to uh, external customers. Now, with all this optimization in place and these systems, and as you continue to learn from the collaboration, it seems like the goal would be to get to zero unplanned downtime. But do you think, what? Do you think that's actually a feasible goal? Oh, I think that's a very feasible goal. Zero unplanned downtime, I think we can achieve that. Zero downtime, I don't think we can achieve <laughs> Unplanned downtime, 
I think we could get there because I think our prediction algorithms are getting better and better. We have better and better ideas, not only because from our from our manufacturing efforts, but also think about, you know, we are using these algorithms for other machines. You know, we have a concept that we call brilliant machines where we are really going after how do we improve the performance of an asset that our customers already have, and that could be wind turbines or, or turbines or jet engines or any other equipment that we sell to our customers. And a lot of this, a lot of these equipments we are selling to our customers, we also maintain. So we have a big service operation. So, you know, most jet engines we sell today will come back to us and we'll actually service that. In fact, we have what we call contractual service agreements where we say we'll sell you this jet engine and we'll also maintain it for you. And so we are actually assuming the risk of that asset's performance. So it's really in our very best interest to improve that product as well as the productivity for how this product is performing. And that will help us to keep our service costs lower and it will help our customers to benefit from the performance of that particular asset. So you're saying that over time, this jet engine could become actually better than new in terms of performance as time goes on. Oh, I think that's very conceivable. So as you maintain the jet engine, you, you could imagine that, especially if you know how we're going to use that jet engine, you could imagine that you uh, create what we call a digital twin of that jet engine. So if you had a perfect virtual representation of that jet engine, I could maybe make changes to that, of course, within FAA regulations, you can make changes to that particular asset and say, oh, maybe we're going to use a different piece in that equipment so that it performs better in the environment it's going to be operating in. So the idea of a digital digital twin for our, for our assets, it's sort of like a complement to the idea of a brilliant factory. Gotcha. So there'll be almost this digital twin at every level of parts of of assembled products, of factories, of groups of factories. The supply chain. Yeah. <laughs> the supply chain. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly the concept we have. And a lot of those will be interchangeable and work with this open source platform you're building so that everybody can kind of play in that in that ecosystem and hopefully leverage each other's expertise. And, and that's why Predix is such an important product we are building with our new software initiatives that cannot be underestimated. No, it's and Predix is going to be open source. We will make Predix available for free to our customers. And then with all the digital twins, I mean, you can really get into the predictive modeling too because your system will understand itself so well that you could predict which situations might challenge the engine too much or might complicate the way a certain machine works in a factory, whether it might be humidity or location or maintenance schedule. That's exactly right. Will this affect the way that factories are actually created in the future, how they're built? So factories will become much more digital. That's going to be obvious. But I think the key will be that we have to think about the people who are actually operating those factories. So we have to think about how are we going to educate our workforce so that they stay competitive and that they can actually operate these factories and that they help us to create the best products possible. What I think we will see is I think we will see shorter supply chains. This is, of course, highly speculative, but I would believe that as we are getting more and more digitally connected, people will see that they can get faster learning cycles when they are closer, especially during development time, when they are closer to their suppliers. I think that will come. 
Do you think along the same lines that future factories maybe might need less square footage and fewer but more specialized people to help manage them rather than kind of the old factories that are in the movies that are broad and spread out and have thousands of people working the machines? I think that's very hard to say. I would imagine that we will have a workforce that will have to operate a much more complicated factory. That's very clear. I also think that we will have factories that are much, much better coordinated. So I think you'll have less variability. Less variability usually leads to fewer space requirements and so forth. I also think we'll have people who are not strained by any ergonomic problems. So you'll have like, you know, more robots and cooperative robots that'll help the people who are actually making these products lift things. And so it will be, I think it will be much more ergonomically friendly. When you're modeling these brilliant factories, do you have digital twins representing people? Absolutely. Oh, yes. So, so, so ergonomics is a, is, a, is a key part of the simulations we are looking at. So because we want to keep the impact on our workers as small as possible. So ergonomic simulations are a key part to that. In addition, what we also do is we're going to generate work instructions from these virtual models. So to make it easier that the work instructions are always up to date, we really want to get away from paper altogether and, and go completely digital. Any other fun stuff that you want to share? You know, if you think about it, we are really getting to the Internet of Things in the factories, right? So yeah. the things will be the machines, and it's really very analogous to uh, the concept in the consumer space. So it's a factory made up of Internet of Things that makes it then more agile, more productive, and lowers costs. That's exactly right. Internet of Things making Internet of Things. <laughs> making Internet of Things. How far does it go? That's a beautiful concept. Yeah, and I, I mean, I couldn't be more excited about this. This is, uh, this is a phenomenal change within manufacturing. I think it will make U.S. manufacturing much more competitive because I think we will get to shorter supply chains. I think it enables small, medium enterprises to contribute to the, uh, to the innovation in manufacturing much, much more than they ever could. And I think the United States will become much more competitive in manufacturing than it is today. And I, I find this very, very exciting. Absolutely. We do too. As people who are kind of neophytes to this area, this is fascinating stuff and very interesting to hear how it's, it's almost going to be a completely different industry by the time all is said and done. Yeah, I think there will be, there'll be huge changes and we have to make sure that we bring the people along with it because they have to still operate these factories and we have to make sure that we educate them and we, uh, we have to make sure that they acquire all the skills that we'll need to operate these factories at an optimal control point. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Stefan, thank you so much for your time. This has been a really interesting conversation. Great. Yeah. So I had a lot of fun with it, too. We appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Far Stuff, the Internet of Things podcast. You can find us on the internet at farstuff.com and at farstuff on Twitter. Get in touch with us using the contact form at farstuff.com or email us at podcast at farstuff.com. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a shiny happy review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To get the best Internet of Things news every week, sign up for our email newsletter at farstuff.com. And this brings us to the end of our thing. Thanks for listening. Thank you.